Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Telling Lies to Children with me, Paul Durham. As always, you can find each and every episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or my website, pauldurhambooks.com. What have we got coming up? Well, uh, on this Friday, September 2nd, um, I'll actually be on New Hampshire Public Radio. Uh, I'll be on The Bookshelf, uh, which is hosted by Peter Biello. And I think that airs at around, during the drive time, it's around 5.50, 6 o'clock or so uh, on Friday. Again, it's coming Friday, September 2nd. So that should be fun. Just a quick interview there. I'll be on the, the other side of, uh, of the microphone. And uh, also uh, a, a long lead time on this, but uh, worth mentioning, November 12th, I'm going to be at the Tampa, Tampa Bay Times Festival of Reading. Uh, I bring that up because I still have some space available. If you want to book a school visit around that date uh, and you're down in Florida, reach out to me and let me know. Um, all the contact information that you need, again, is at pauldurhambooks.com. So uh, on to today's episode. Today, uh, I am joined by uh, two literary agents. Uh, I like to mix it up sometimes. Sometimes we do authors, sometimes we do editors, we do booksellers. Today, it's a literary agent today, literary agent day. And uh, I have two great ones. Uh, Marcus Hoffman is a partner at Regal Hoffman and Associates. Uh, he also happens to be my agent. Uh, he's, uh, he's a really interesting guy, very smart guy. Uh, and we talked about a lot of uh, uh, a lot of sort of the ins and outs of agenting. Uh, talked about international markets. Uh, if you're interested in in uh, learning more about agents, this is probably the episode for you. Uh, and we're also joined by one of Marcus's colleagues. That's Claire Anderson Wheeler. Uh, I've worked with Claire as well. She's another terrific agent at uh, Regal Hoffman. Without uh, without any further introduction, uh, we'll pick it up with Marcus and Claire on the other side of the intro. Thanks for joining us. Shh. Are the kids gone? Good. It's time for Telling Lies to Children with me, your host, Paul Durham. This is a first-of-its-kind podcast, one hosted by a children's author, that's me again, but intended for adults who live and breathe children's literature. That's you. Whether you're a librarian, a media specialist, a teacher, or a parent, we all work with children every day. But sometimes, it's nice to talk like adults with adults who share our love of children's books and publishing. I'll be chatting with editors at the world's biggest publishing houses, literary agents, award-winning authors, booksellers, librarians, and even young readers. Join me and my guests as we give you a candid, behind-the-scenes look at children's publishing, the business of telling lies to children. But only the best kinds of lies, of course. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm here. <laughs> hi, Claire. Nice to say hello. I, 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 we've corresponded, but I, I don't think I've ever said hi on the phone. It's <laughs> nice to chat. And I'm listening in and nodding along and feeling very impressed with your industry. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, well, this is all uh, this is all this is all this is all brand new to me. So I have I have no voice for radio. Um, I have no particular technical skills. So I said, oh, let's start a podcast. Why not? <laughs> Perfect fit. And I have a book. And I have a book I need to be finishing. So here's an even here's another way to procrastinate. Right. Right. Uh, but um, but so we can just jump in and off we go. So um, yep. so thank you guys for joining me. Uh, it's great to great to have you on. 
So, Marcus, Claire, I, I know you guys, obviously, you, you come from uh, international backgrounds. I mean, um, I think you're both raised outside of the United States, right? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and and where, where have your, um, uh, in the wonderful world of agenting, where have your travels taken you lately? Have you guys gone to any of the recent book fairs and things like that? Yeah, we both were in London at the annual book fair there, which takes place in April um, and is one of the two big annual gathering places for the whole usually happy, sometimes slightly unhappy or depressed uh, international <laughs> publishing community. <laughs> How were they this year? Were they depressed or were they happy? Um, they were actually, I guess, better than in the past, I would say. Or what was your impression, Claire? I, I would say the same. I would say, uh, yeah, sort of reasonably reasonably serene. Um, not smug, but but serene. Serene. Okay. How, how I, I didn't I didn't read any of the trades. How how were the sales this year? I mean, were they up? Were they down? Were they steady? The same. I mean, in general. Um, I think in most of the European markets, things are slowly improving. I mean, most of Europe got hit by the same crisis that hit the U.S. kind of both the economy in general and then publishing in particular, with kind of a couple years delay. Um, and so um, some of the big European markets like Italy and Spain and the Netherlands were in quite a deep slump for the last couple of years, but they seem to be through the worst, at least they've bottomed out or are slowly beginning to crawl out of the hole that they were in. So that was encouraging to see. Um, the Americans generally seemed pretty okay and seemed to be doing pretty well because the market here is a little further along in its recovery. Um, Asia is doing really well. Right. Um, I mean, there's always kind of up and down markets and a few years ago everyone was so excited about how Brazil was uh, investing hard and building all these lists and buying all this <laughs> new material and of course how'd that go this year? And the Brazilians usually always look happy but they looked actually pretty glum because they were uh, hit by this triple whammy of like political turmoil, economic turmoil, and Zika virus, Right, Olympic right. Games in turmoil, and uh, so yeah, they they are usually incredibly cheerful, but they were not cheerful this year. I think it's fair. Yeah, so so yeah, even the normally the normally festive Brazilians are a little bit down. I. Uh, I I, I always laugh about Brazil because it's, it's, it's fine. This is just an aside. My, I, I used to joke that for a while I was a Brazilian property owner by marriage, <laughs> and the reason reason for that is <laughs> the reason for that is because um, my this was before when my wife and I were dating. Um, she went down. Her her both my wife and and my mother in law had this great affinity for Brazil, and um, and my mother in law in particular would make trips down there. And they they bought what they referred to as the little yellow house in cash, <laughs> in a little mountain town <laughs> that that they had. And of course, being a, being a lawyer at the time, I was always worried about you know tax implications. Do we have to declare this? Because I think my wife's name was actually on the deed as well for whatever reason. Because <laughs> somehow her name was on the deed, so I was always very paranoid about being a property owner. In Brazil, and I'm not even sure what really happened to that little yellow house at this point, but I'm sure it's down. I'm sure somebody very festive is living in it down there right now. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting talking about the international stuff because a lot of the you know the audience I think for this podcast will be a lot of you know teachers and librarians and sort of the gatekeepers in the industry, and and I think it's fun to have you guys on because I, you know, I'll have a lot of authors on, but I I think 
from the business side, you know, I talk to a lot of librarians and teachers, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of aspiring authors out there. Um, as you can imagine, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of folks who are who are still toiling and, and looking to get it published, and, and are always interested in learning more about the business side of it and, and the industry. And I think that, you know, for the most part, um, to people who aren't on the inside, you know, they think of publishing as as sort of very U.S. centric. You know, you get your book published by a by one of the one of the U.S. publishers, and it's you know out there, you know, locally in your local bookstores, and you can you know maybe do some book signings and things like that. But the international side of it really is a big is a big part of it, right? I mean, with with the international rights, and and I know that was a big reason that I signed on with Regal Hoffman, you know, I guess, wow, going on over four years ago now, was because of sort of the international presence and the and the global approach you guys uh, took to it. So can you talk a little bit just about the importance of the international markets when it comes to your clients and, and just books in general? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, it's easy here in the States to forget that there is a whole wide world out there that is also interested in books, or maybe even more interested in books than a lot of Americans are, because um, America publishes relatively few books from outside the English language world, whereas the other way around, I mean, publishers in all the European markets and the Asian markets, they buy lots and lots of books, obviously, from America and from the UK, and so being in those markets, it's, you're much more aware of how much of an international exchange there really is of ideas and of books and of stories, and I guess partly because our agency has always had people working here that were not from the US. I think right now we're actually majority non-US because mm -hmm. really? I'm Irish, Daniela <laughs> is Canadian, I'm German, uh, and there are only two people who are bona fide Americans. So. Right. Uh, it's very glam it's a very glamorous agency. I feel very uh, <laughs> some of your some of your some of your worldliness rubs off on me maybe. Right. I hope. We right. all wear sunglasses indoors. Is that what you do? Okay, good. I'm gonna try that. And and wear black turtlenecks. <laughs> uh, in August. But no, it's always I mean it's always been important, I think, to everybody at the agency to not ignore the international side of the business. Also because a number of um, the authors we represent have been very, very successful in the international market, sometimes even more successful in the international markets than in the US market. Um, so it's definitely, I mean, it's obviously on the one hand, it's, it's great for an author to be sent their Turkish and <coughs> Spanish and Catalan edition of their books. And it's also potentially a really good um, additional business opportunity because cumulatively, um, foreign deals can actually bring in a really handy um, kind of sum of money for an author and for an agency as well, obviously. So, because um, both, both ideologically and and professionally and from a business sense, it it makes it makes good sense to pay attention to that dimension of the business. There's also a sense of um, kind of critical mass as well that if a few foreign sales are notched up, people who are kind of on that radar they start to notice and it can be very helpful for both procuring further foreign sales and, and just giving an author more sense of, of prominence um, within within our world, um, which again is, is both gratifying but, but also materially rewarding in a lot of ways. And I think even more broadly than of course our focus is very much on um, selling translation rights for the authors that we represent and their pro projects, but um, more broadly, just having that international side of our business is a wonderful just door into 
I suppose keeping our perspective also on how big the 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 international market is that we only see quite a small portion of it, and that um, you know German authors are not only buying uh, German editors are not only buying books in the English language; they're buying across. Um, many, many languages and many cultural backgrounds and a lot of markets have a lot more exposure to other um, languages and markets than the American one does, unfortunately. But it's nice to work in a field where you're often reminded of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly um, that certainly makes it, it that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I you know you you talked about sort of the snowball effect and sort of just the nice uh, giving a bit of prominence. Uh, you know, I'm always quick to quick to splash all over social media every time, you know, luck uglies gets translated somewhere. So you can see that. And when I mention it in, you know, when I do school visits or if I'm out somewhere and I talk about it, people's eyebrows really raise when they realize that, yeah, your, your books aren't only being read here in the United States, but they're being, you know, read in these sort of far flung places. So yeah. um, it's a, it's beyond just a, a nice feeling. It, it, it sort of does give a, it's a, it's a marketing tool too. Mm -hmm. right? I, I can, mm -hmm. I, I can, I can see how it works. How, how is there, is there a, a different, do you take a different approach when you uh, are selling to uh, international publishers as opposed to just selling us, uh, you know, obvi obviously, you know, when we're talking big publishers here in the U S they're international publishers, but when, when you're selling rights to, you know, maybe some of the, uh, publishers who are based in other countries, as opposed to having their big offices in Manhattan or something like that. Do you, do you take a different approach with the with the international publishers than you do with the U.S.? Is it a different style, or is it just much like you know just the business world in general is different? Oftentimes, when you when you are in Europe or as opposed to the U.S. Um, I guess there is a bit of a difference in style. I mean, publishing in the states and and in the U.K. as well over the last few years really has become even more driven by sales and marketing considerations and so when we try to sell a book here it's really very very important that we can frame the book within a wider kind of publishing context that we can have those famous comp titles comparative titles ready that we can right. give an editor lots of ammunition in hand for why this particular project fits into a certain bracket of the market really well um, while at the same time of course being new and innovative which is a little bit of a paradox but <laughs> you usually find a way to deal with that. And then, right. I mean, generally, in my experience, in, in some of the big European markets, that necessity to really be able to frame a project primarily commercially is not there yet in the same way. Um, mm. And maybe a book still is judged a little more on its own merits, and then editors figure out how they can fit it into their program. Whereas sometimes you get the sense that here, that that is kind of turned upside down and the marketing consideration comes first and then you consider the, the literary merit and the quality of the book. So there's a there's a bit of a difference there and it's one of the reasons why um, I enjoy being at those international trade events because um, you just have slightly different conversations about mm -hmm. your books um, with different people and ideally you also just realize a few more things about the books you're selling by having different conversations with different people about them. I think also there's a lot that um, editors in different markets um, may be um, readier to dismiss in a way because a lot of our points of reference, of course, are not specific to our market, but um, certain kinds of awards or reviews or even sales figures that um, editors in other markets can say, well, that's not necessarily going to apply to us or this or that won't carry the same weight here, um, which in some ways can be disheartening, but in some ways is 
maybe just the same as Marcus's point that they 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 just end up looking at the book on its merits um, because all the all the kind of frame that you built for it, like within the American market, that that may or may not um, translate for them. Yeah, and, and, and it's you know it's an interesting point that you guys bring bring up the, the idea of distinctions um, in, in how you you know how you frame a book, what they may be looking for. So so I, I think if I'm not mistaken, um, you both represent both children's you know YA as well as adult. You know, Marcus, I know you I know you do you definitely do both. Right. And, and Claire, do you do both as well? Do you do you represent you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and how do you find how do you find the differences in and we can I mean we don't have to talk on a global level we can take it you know make it, <laughs> make it a little more easy to grasp maybe even just just in general with with the books you sell on the U S side or or internationally is fine as well do you find that there's a, a do you have do do you find differences in uh, in your approach to selling you know adult novels versus middle grade or YA. Um, are, are the publishers different? Do you have to frame things differently? Is is one more commercial, generally speaking, than the other? Or, or what have you, what I mean? What have you found in your experience? Um, yeah, I guess I mean with with children's books, both middle grade and and YA, I think both here and in, and internationally, those those categories seem to be maybe more trend driven than adult publishing, um, which I think partly has to do with the fact that you have a narrower bracket of readers. I mean, you have readers from age like 8 to age 16 or 18, um, which is a much smaller group, obviously, than readers from age 18 to 85 or so. So you can fit much more right. into into adult publishing just because there's a much wider, yeah, uh, a much wider group of people available. Um, and so um, and so, yeah, in, in adult publishing, there's space always at the same time for sci-fi and fantasy and realistic fiction and magic realist. Um, right. Whereas in, in children's publishing, um, it seems that there's very much a specific trend that is valid at, at any one moment, and books that don't fit into that trend have a much harder time to get acquired and, and get an audience. Um, and I guess that is... I mean, that is true, I think, both for the U.S. and for the international markets. Um, so in that sense, maybe those markets are actually more more closely aligned. Um, what's almost impossible to sell out of the U.S. are picture books or books for young readers because it seems that every foreign market has their domestic authors who cater to that and there are big differences in style and approach when it comes to illustrations but also when it comes to texts of how mature those storylines can be for, say, American readers age five to eight or German readers age five to eight, um, and those those seem to be very hard to to match up. Um, they become kind of more uh, parallel and more in line, kind of as you get from yeah age eight, eight and and further. At least that's my kind of assessment. Not yeah, sure I would I would echo that definitely. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose parenting styles and the, the kind of reading material that um, parents want to give their children can vary so much across cultures, um, even cultures that don't seem all that distant from our own. It, it can be quite um, interesting, I think, to note the, the, the nuances there, um, whereas I think literary fiction, it's, it's subjective, certainly, but... 
Um, so, you know, what, what's going to sell to another over here is not necessarily going to pick up the same traction in another market, but I, I think there's, um, there's, there's maybe better chances that it, that it will, um, or at least that it, it, the appeal is, is just subjective rather than um, more, more market-driven. Um, I think particularly at the YA end, um, there's a lot of fiction we see that's very issue-led, and of course those issues can be, um, can be a lot more culturally specific and also can have a lot to do with the kind of edginess or level of maturity um, that the gatekeepers of a market really want to bring to their, their younger reading population. Yeah, that's um, it, it's it, it's interesting. Do you guys find it as do you find that the sort of trend driven approach to publishing as frustrating as I'm sure many authors do? <laughs> Can that is that is that frustrating for you sometimes when um, you know you feel you feel like books that you may want to acquire or books that you that you have acquired not acquired books that you, that you, your clients you've signed on um, to represent uh, and do you find it frustrating when you know you feel like you, you found this wonderful book but it just doesn't it just doesn't fit into a trend? Yeah, it can be. I mean, on the flip side, I guess it, it encourages you to make sure that if you have um, a YA novel that doesn't fit into the current trend, that it really is absolutely top-notch because you know that's going to be the only way that you'll be able to get a good deal for it. So right. it's frustrating, but it also kind of keeps you on your toes as an agent to really make sure that you only pick the finest of the finest, especially yeah, if you're in a category that you know is not the flavor of the day right now. Sure. Um, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question that, that, that people will ask me all the time because I seem to run, a lot of the aspiring authors I run into will ask me about their picture book that they've been working on. And you know, the question is always, well, how do I, you know, how do I, um, how can I go about, what are the steps of getting my picture book published? And I, you know, I don't really know a whole lot about picture books because that's not what I do. I know it is exceedingly difficult to get those published. And I learned something new today that internationally it's almost impossible to go from, <laughs> go from the U.S. internationally with uh, the picture books. But how, how does, I mean, how does that even work? I know a lot of agents won't represent picture books unless they're by authors they already represent. Or the big thing, it seems to me, it's that the author illustrators, you really have to have, you kind of have to have the one-two punch sometimes. Or, or again, just for, for the sake of people People who ask me so I can pass it on. Um, how, do, how does the picture book market even work? Um, I, I, if I had to guess, I, I doubt that you sign many pure picture book authors who aren't named Mo Willems or something like that. I mean, you, you guys tell me. Yeah, I mean, you have some experience with picture books, Claire. Right? Um, yeah, I would probably. I, I have some, but it's, um, it's not an emphasis of the agency, I guess, um, and it is quite a specific market. Um, it's fascinating, I find, on the children's side. You know, these distinctions are so huge between, like, one year makes all the difference, you know, I mean, in terms of a child's development, so that the market for picture books really is quite distinct, um, and you certainly find it um, in in-house, you know, in, with, in publishers that people don't tend to, um, or, I mean, some editors do, but it, it's rarer, you know, that they'll, they'll operate across kind of a broad range. Um, yeah, I think in terms of getting a picture book published, um, I, I would say in many ways um, a lot of the, the usual rules apply, and one of them is just read, read, read. I think the, a, a problem sometimes that I see is that people imagine that picture books are going to be easy, um, and also that they, they often um, 
write sort of harking back to picture books that they remember from their youth or classics. But just as with any other part of the reading market, if you're looking to make something fresh and new, you have to be really gauging what you're doing as against picture books that were published this year and last year and I mean ideally published next year but you're unlikely to get your hands on them but um, really looking at what's new that you can bring to the market um, and being very aware you know of, of things like um, just the level of, of intellectual emotional sophistication use of vocabulary all those things that are um, kind of informal rules really for your market. And I think right. also don't try to sell text and illustrations together, right? Right, right. Um, usually they'll usually um, they will be they will be paired up and publishers are much more they appreciate really having the flexibility to do that themselves. I mean if if you have the great good luck to be a, a trained, fantastic artist um, who also has an incredible way with words and really understands um, the, the the genus of the picture book. Um, you know, maybe that's for you, but for the most part, um, it's it's better to to focus on your strengths really rather than try and um, do everything. And uh, do you, I mean? And again, this is for the benefit of the people who ask, just because I don't know. Um, do, do publishers are they willing to to accept, uh, or are they more willing to accept um, uh, unagented submissions of of, picture, of text for picture books, or is that st is it still pretty much where you need to be represented to get in that door? Um, I I would say very much the latter. Um, yeah. Again, it's just one of those areas that it, it takes a lot of skill and and market awareness, but there's a disproportionate amount of people I think who, mm -hmm. because it it seems like a, a smaller undertaking, you know, compared to a, a ninety thousand word novel, um, that try their hand at that. So just there, there's there's a, a deluge really of of submissions in that area, and I think publishers are very attached to having some form of, um, of gatekeeper to mind the floodgates in that sector of the market. Sure. And it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense like, any, like anything else, but, but it is interesting. Like you said, I think I find a lot of people, uh, a lot of aspiring authors gravitate towards picture books, probably because they have, you know, young children mm -hmm. and it's something that they start doing on their own. And it, and it does seem like a much more manageable task than, than trying to write a full novel. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I used to try to write screenplays and it's an entirely different art um, than writing novels. <laughs> Some, you know, sometimes you know, if you're long winded like I am, uh, sometimes having that luxury of, of 300 or 400 pages makes a big difference. So <laughs> it's, right. it, it, it is a different craft. I mean, it's a different craft. It's a different art, a different craft all, all together. Um, there, there are similarities, but I can, I can see how, I can see how, you know, it, it People can be fooled or lulled into thinking that it's an easier endeavor, and it's really not. Right. Yeah. It's really. Um, so, what gets you guys? I mean, you know, I've, I, I guess I don't ask the typical questions, right? I'm getting into the nitty gritty of <laughs> of the business, um, just because I, I think that's what I find interesting. But what I mean, so what gets you guys like project wise? What gets you guys excited these days? I mean, well, first thing we can do what, any. Um, a any Regal Hoffman clients that are uh, has work coming out in the near future? You guys are excited about, or or um, you got, I mean, do you have any authors that that have uh, upcoming uh, upcoming pub dates that you're that that uh, that I should be on the lookout for? 
Yeah, we have, gosh, I can't even remember what we have in the fall. We have a couple of uh, really interesting books coming out early next year. Um, a really beautiful first novel by a writer called Adelia Saunders called Indelible that's coming out with Bloomsbury in January. Um, and then a uh, really great memoir by a writer and critic called Daphne Merkin called This Close to Happy that's coming out in February. Uh, so those are two of the big things that are coming up. Then we have some light reading in the autumn, a book on American philosophy by, <laughs> uh, by a young philosophy professor called John Carr, who uh, was a little bit bored with writing just for the academy. I think I'm allowed to say that on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he has, still has a very good academic career, I should add that on sure. a caveat. Uh, but it's a really lovely story of discovering... Um, the library of a very eminent Harvard philosopher on his estate in New Hampshire um, and saving that library from um, uh, not destruction but from the books being eaten away by, by the inclement weather up there because the library wasn't weatherproof anymore and falling, falling in love with his own profession again in the, in the process of coming across those beautiful old books. In inclement weather in New Hampshire, I, I can't imagine. Such <laughs> yes, um, no, you you would not know what that what that entails. <laughs> Although last time, Marcus, last time I, I think you were up here, the weather was probably pretty nice, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. At least when you you were on my deck, I think we had a rather nice day. But, we did, but that and was, we had yeah. we had very cold iced coffee or nitro yeah. nitro coffee. Right. <laughs> right, which which I have I have to wander back downtown and see if I can I think it's probably back on tap by now. Right, but uh, right. but yeah, that, that is one of my new favorites. <laughs> and uh, and and with so with with some with summer coming up for you guys, is that is that a big reading time? I I, I you know I always get the sense that the, that. August, the publishing industry sort of disappears. Um, maybe that's not fair or not true, um, but it kind of it kind of seems that at least I think the the impression is that that August is a is a fairly quiet time. Um, you do you find do you find well? And I guess I know from experience deals get done in the summer because because you guys did a deal for me in the summer. Right. Um, but it, it, is summer generally a quieter season where you spend more time reading? Or is, yeah, I mean obviously people are taking vacations and things like that. Is, what, what's the rhythm of of your year like? Um, yeah, summer does get a little quieter. I mean, it, it used to be, or at least people tell you that at some point in the past, in the golden past, um, after July 4th, things got very quiet, and then um, until Labor Day, really not much was going on in the industry. That has changed, and now it's really only August that really is a quiet month, and where, with, with some exceptions, you tend not to make big submissions. Um, and yeah, for us, it, that means that August can be a good time to look for new projects, um, read a lot of magazines, look for nonfiction writers, go through our slush pile, um, start serious editorial work with new clients that we've taken on whose manuscripts we edit and develop with them. Um, Take off on Fridays and go surfing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I do that through the through the year. That's Throughout the year, right? You can make your own schedule. Right. Um, yep. I mean the the busy times in the in the publishing calendar definitely cluster around the book fair. So February through May with the London Book Fair in April as an anchor and then Labor Day through um, Thanksgiving I guess with the Frank Book Fair in the middle of that period in October. Those are 
than the really busy seasons. But being an agent is kind of an open-ended job because there's always more that you can do um, because obviously you want to work well with your existing clients and you also want to grow the business and grow your client base. So in that sense, it's never a, a really quiet, quiet season. There's maybe a little less interaction with editors kind of during the so-called quiet months in the summer. Sure. And, and, and are you, um, are you guys, are you guys, I, I just, are you, are you both still open to submissions, uh, to, to new clients or, or, or where, where do you guys stand in that department? Yeah, no, um, only, only yeah. great books, obviously, but of course, <laughs> of course, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Um, obviously as, as you get older as an agent and as a person, you, you, you become um, even more selective than you are from the start, but um, mm -hmm. if something great comes along, um, you would be stupid not to not to say yes to it. Right, and, and uh, just a, a couple things I'd have to touch on before, before we're done, because so so Claire, I, I understand that that we sh we share a at least a common background as far as your legal training goes. Oh right, yes. <laughs> and, I, and and yeah, now you, but but you. Um, did you did you ever actually practice, or did, I know you have a law degree, um, but did you ever actually practice? No, um, no, I, I, I fled before that stage. Um, that was smart. You're very wise. Yeah, it was a good. Point. Yeah. I remember being uh, being interviewed in in a law firm, and they were lovely people too. You know, it wasn't that they it wasn't that it came across so horrible. But they kept asking me why I wanted to be a lawyer, and um, all I could think about was uh, all these post-grad programs in uh, English literature and the like that uh, sounded so appealing. And I sort of came out of that interview realizing that um, whatever whatever they felt about me, I probably didn't feel the right things about them. Sure. Um, <laughs> But but you but you certainly you certainly have the opportunity to apply the background now when you're when you're doing work with contracts and things like that. So, yeah, so. I think it's you know it's interesting. There's actually um, there's a surprising amount of people with law backgrounds who who write or work in publishing, and I think you know there are a lot of common skills in terms of a, a sort of a reverence for words and a, and a, a kind of. A, enjoyment of their malleability and um, paying a lot of attention to nuance and structure and words as, as a design. Um, and yeah, I think all of that definitely, I mean, it sort of explains maybe my attraction to both careers, but um, um, it certainly helps still, you know, looking at, at contracts. And we do come across a lot of them. They don't tend to be quite as elaborate as a lot of ones that you might see within the legal profession. Um, but, you know, some of them will trip you up if you're not careful, for sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and Marcus, I, in addition to being like, you know, world-class surfer and, uh, and an amazing musician, right. And <laughs> you, you were, and, and I, I know that you've explained this to me before, but I always, I, I still can't get my arms around it. Um, you were, you were a literary scout, right. Before, before you, before you got right. into agenting and, and could you explain for me one more time and, and, and for, <laughs> I'm sure listeners who have no idea what a literary scout is. And I've heard the story at least once or twice. What does a literary scout actually do? I mean, it seems like it's like sort of like you're like this mysterious operative, um, who lurks in the shadows <laughs> and keeps your eye on, on what the, or keeps your thumb on what what's what's upcoming and what what does a literary scout actually do again? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I I jokingly describe it as a cross um, 
between being a professional gossip and being a reasonably benign industrial spy. Um, <laughs> so what, what those scouting offices do, and most of them are based in either London or the US to uh, work in the British and, and um, American market respectively. So those scouting offices have a, a base of international publishing clients, so publishing houses or groups in usually most of the big European markets and uh, often also some Asian markets and sometimes also a film studio or production company. Um, and what scouts do is really basically have their finger on the pulse of what is hot and what is being published and being sold in the market that they cover for their clients. So my job as, as a scout here in New York was basically to meet as many editors and agents as I could to find out not just what they had just published, but what they were really interested in buying or had just bought. Um, and ideally get my fingers on those manuscripts, read them quickly, write a short, succinct report and send that off to my company's foreign publishing clients so that they were in a good position to snap up rights in their markets if they were interested in the, in the property. And did that involve a lot of like sort of like schmoozing and whining and dining and going to cocktails and things like that to sort of, I mean, that, that's how I'd like to envision it. Maybe it wasn't nearly that fun and um, interesting. No, that, that definitely does happen a lot. I mean, it is your yeah. job to, to be professionally, uh, professional socialized. Um, the, the unfortunate thing is that then you also have to spend hours in the office making data entries and making sure that information you provide to your foreign publishing clients on any given property are exactly accurate, for example, right. that they know who the agent is, who bought it here, what rights are available, how those rights are being sold, are they being sold by the publisher, are they being sold by the agency, are they being sold through a local co-agent, are there any option publishers to consider, that is, are there publishers that have published that same author in the foreign market before, and if you don't have accurate records on all of that, then you're not really being much help to your foreign clients. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of very heavy data management involved, um, and since you're supposed to spend all the time socializing, you just don't have time to do, to do all of that. <laughs> As a consequence of which, it's a pretty time-consuming and intense uh, and sometimes stressful job. Um, right. That certainly brings its uh, exciting moments of kind of adrenaline coursing through your vein if you snag the manuscript that you know kind of you're one of the first people to see in town. Um, but it's definitely a, yeah, a pretty high pressure job. Well, I, I can definitely picture you like in your tuxedo with your martini and like your cool German <laughs> accent, like sort of like, you know, making the rounds and sort of, you know, <laughs> with your ear to the ground. You lose all, you, you use all the tools at your disposal, including the accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I mean, I could keep you guys talking all day, but I want to make sure that, uh, that you're, you, you have time to go out and discover some more great books and, <laughs> and sell some more great, great books for everybody. Um, but I want to thank you. I want to thank you both for spending some time with me. It was really, it was really fun to chat with you. Absolutely. Oh, it was a pleasure, Paul. <laughs> All right. Well, and I'm sure we will, we will, of course, connect again soon, but, but thanks again for, for joining me. Absolutely, Paul. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Telling Lies to Children was brought to you by, well, nobody, just me and my guests. One of the nice things about being completely unknown in the vast world of podcasting is that you don't have to listen to me read 10 minutes worth of ads at the beginning and end of every episode. But I hope you'll check out my website, 
pauldurhambooks.com. There you can find out more about the Luck Ugly series, you can book a school visit, you can shop the newly opened Dead Fish Inn gift shop, or just reach out and say hello. I'd love to hear from you. You can also find links to all of my guests' websites and social media there. So until next time, I wish you happy reading, ugly luck, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. that woke you up. See you next time.